one hand, historically speaking, we have very little left over from Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. He wrote only a few essays and letters and just a handful of articles. On the other hand, there is very little in Jewish life, both during his lifetime all the way up till today, that has not been significantly influenced by the great Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. In this class, we take a look at this remarkable person, as well as the movement that he created. As always, please like and share this podcast, ask us a question, or leave us a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Math. The Musser Movement, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, a brief history. That's going to be the topic of this morning's conversation. I'm going to break this up into three primary parts, depending on, on our time. And again, our clock is broken, so I'm just going to keep on going till it's 7 o'clock, and it'll be great. We're going to break this discussion up into three different parts. We're first going to talk about what was the Musser Movement, what were its primary goals, We're then going to move to a second part, sort of a biography slash historical account of the Musser movement's founder, Rabbi Yisrael Lipkin, more commonly known as Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. And then the third part, time permitting, we're going to actually talk about what Musser looks like, the Musser movement in practice. What does it actually look like? How is it implemented? The Musser movement. What is Musser? Musser is loosely defined as... Jewish ethics, Jewish philosophy, Jewish values. It's hard to give it a one-word definition. But in terms of understanding its goals, it's helpful to understand a little bit of the background. Particularly Jewish life in the 1800s in Eastern Europe is really, like Lithuania, that's really where the Muslim movement is born in the early to mid-1800s. And it's always important to understand what the context was. Life in, and we've talked about this in in several classes, life in the 1800s, the 1800s, the 19th century in general, particularly in Eastern Europe, was a transformative century for a number of reasons. Number one, huge population growth. We talk about Ashkenazic Jewry, Lithuanian Jewry. We think of like Ashkenazic Jewry makes up 80% of Jewish life. That population growth really began in the 1800s a huge growth of population. So you have huge numbers. Number two is the poverty during 19th century Eastern Europe became more and more oppressive. So you have many, many more people facing much more stress than they had had in previous centuries. That combination led to the mid 1800s, led to uninspired Judaism. Judaism as a religion, as a practice, really suffered in the mid-1800s. A steep, steep decline in Lithuania, in Poland, in all of Eastern Europe, what we would call, everyone's from Russia. It was really a bunch of little different countries. There was a steep decline in Judaism, not Jewish practice. There was only in that, and certainly in Eastern Europe, the only thing that was practiced was Orthodox traditional Judaism. Everyone kept kosher, everyone observed Shabbos, everyone observed all the rituals and behaviors and practices of Judaism. There was no other options, but the fervor, the passion began to wane, really because of two reasons. Number one, you have population growth. There just wasn't the infrastructure to service all of the people in Eastern Europe. Combined with the tremendous crushing poverty Combined with people have just been practicing Judaism out of rote, Judaism became mechanized, became sterile. There was vi- the passion, the fire, the flame of Judaism really began to... So I see Rabbi Katanik has a question. Why was the, why the birth rate suddenly go up? It's one of the great historical questions. It's not clear. Uh, my theory, you want to know my theory, is, is God. We find, this is my theory, it's really, it's not a very clear understanding historically, but it's really because of God. We find in, when the Jews were in Egypt, right, when the Egyptians tried to squish Jewish life, right, we find that the population increased. When they were deliberately trying to decrease the population, God had, it was a similar thing. Russia was really trying to squish the Jews, and I think God miraculously had them increase. There were three major, without getting too sidetracked, three major decrees that the Russian government, it was really the Russian government, really did three main, major things in the, in the 1800s that really destroyed Jewish life. Number one was the Cantonist decrees. You may have heard, been familiar with. This was where, where um, Jews were basically, really it was everyone was, was conscripted into the Russian army, but it was particularly focused on the Jewish community where it was horrible, horrible. They, number two, there was the Pale of Settlement. The Jews were squished and confined into a very small area. They were banned from living in place. Villages just ceased to exist overnight. Jews were confined to a very small area in Eastern Europe. 
And number three, trades and professions were limited tremendously by the Russian government. Jews couldn't practice a lot of jobs. The Russian government was deliberately trying to squish the Jewish population. And I think my theory is because of that, God, you know, had the, the reverse came true. The Jewish population really, it, it, I mean, I'm going to make up numbers, easily tenfold, easily a tenfold, probably if not more, probably 20, 30 fold population increase. Let's say from the year 1800 to the year, I don't know, to the late to the mid 1880s. Because of this decline of Jewish inspiration, a lot of movements filled the void. This is always true in life. When there's a void, something will fill it in. Judaism wasn't servicing people's needs for spirituality, for purpose, for meaning. So other movements in the 1800s, at some point, really crept in. In Eastern Europe, by the mid-1800s, it would be the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, which is a whole conversation of what was that. It was a big range from pretty observant Jews all the way to completely unobservant. And it was essentially a, a call of, of enlightenment, of wisdom, of intellect, and really ranging from tolerating Jewish thought and practice to ridiculing it. So that was the Haskalah. Other movements were political in nature, things like Zionism. Zionism really caught fire because Jews in Eastern Europe were looking for something and they didn't find Judaism. So Zionism, but other political isms like Marxism, socialism, anarchism became very popular, right? The early anarchists, the early Marxists, the early communists, the early socialists, they were disproportionately Jewish. Because, again, you have this population increase combined with waning Jewish passion. Jews, look, Jews are always looking. We're always searching for something and meaning. That, that is a very Jewish trait. So Jews found these different political movements. Another way of dealing with this reality of Eastern European uh, demunition of, of Judaism population growth, many Jews, to way, the way they sought to relieve their predicament, many Jews would go to the United States of America as a way of dealing with this, this void. Millions would. Another movement which was wildly popular, and the way I see it, maybe I'm wrong, is really dealing centrally, fundamentally with the same issues, was Hasidism. The Hasidic movement, which again really does predate this, it, it, was, in around, it, was, in around, it was around in the 18th century, but it really takes hold in the 19th century, in the 1800s, as a way of reinfusing Jewish vigor, it was a populist movement in many ways, and it was very popular. And one might argue that the Musser movement was just another one of these isms, another one of these responses to waning Jewish practice. And in many ways, that is correct. That is a simple way of looking at it. There's one difference, and it's well highlighted by Rabbi Dov Katz in his monumental work to Nuas HaMusser. There's a big difference between Musser and other groups, other groups and other movements. Musser, the Musser movement, which again is born in the mid-1800s, was a call to Jewish ethics, Jewish values, and Jewish philosophy. And I want to just read a paragraph or two. I think it'll be helpful to explain. Rabbi Katz writes, a fundamental distinction must be drawn between all the lines of approach and Musser. While each of the former, like Hasidism and all those political movements, possesses some element of novelty, some new aspect, as it were, and indeed there are many different lines of approaches to the Torah, Musser, by contrast, represents the quintessence of Judaism. In all the other approaches could be described as interpretations derived from the Torah by application of various deductive methods, Musser would represent its pshat, the plain, straightforward meaning given in the text. Musser teachings redirect Torah thinking to the original sources, adopts their established principles, and follows the plain sense of the tradition. It uncovers the historic substance of Judaism in its utter purity and integrity. Just a one more paragraph. Normally, movements do not come into, this, into existence in this manner. Every new movement contains something revolutionary, a new idea, a revolution of the old and accepted. This new idea gains momentum, seizes hold of the masses, and propels them into action. As a result, a new movement is born. Not so the Musser movement. It contains no new idea. I love that. The Musser movement contains no new idea. It merely revives adherence to the very old. Yet although it contains nothing new in the realm of ideas, it nevertheless possesses an element of renewal, the restoration to life to, of the ancient, authentic sources, and a complete integrated Torah life. I find this to be so profound. Instead of introducing revolutionary ideas, it revolutionized persons transforming their entire life patterns, changing their entire spiritual profile. 
Musser, unlike most other movements, particularly the 1900s, but honestly, of the many movements that have come and gone or come and stayed within Judaism, in a certain sense, Musser was not a revolutionary idea. It really didn't call for any new changes, new focuses, new emphasis, whereas many of these other isms didn't. Some of them were good for Judaism, some of them were not so good. Musser fundamentally is different. It was a call to return to the fundamentals of Judaism. What does Judaism stand for? What is Judaism all about? And I believe from a historical perspective and from a Jewish ethics perspective, we do need to look at Musser in a, as a different type of movement. It wasn't a revolution, it wasn't a new focus. Works of Musser have existed for centuries and millennia. It's fundamental to Judaism. Musser, although it, what, there was a Musser movement and it was in some sense an ism of the 1800s, it was a refocusing. It was saying, whoa, 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 we've drifted so far away. Judaism has become mechanical, rote, devoid of passion, devoid of enthusiasm. The Muslim movement was, let's return to the fundamentals of Judaism. What is Judaism all about? Why is it meaningful? Why will it make our lives better? Why will it bring joy and happiness to our lives? John, sir, should it come out of Hasidism? No, very, very, very different. Very, very different than the Hasidic movement. The Hasidic movement would be a popular, a populist movement. The Hasidic movement would also, like just even geographically, be in different regions, particularly like Poland, the Ukraine. The, the Muslim movement would take hold primarily in Lithuania and other parts of Eastern Europe as well, Latvia and others. But fundamentally, the call of Musser was very different. Musser and, and maybe... Maybe now would be a good time to talk about Musser works. You could talk about if anyone wants to study more about Musser. There are many books in English and Hebrew. I tend to categorize them in three different categories. You have traditional Musser works, which predate the Musser movement of the 1850s by centuries, if not millennia. And they're translated into English, and many probably have studied some of them. The Orchos Tzadikim, the ways of the Tzadikim, this is written in what, the 1200s? The Path of the Just by Rabbi Lutzato, published in the 1700s. These books predate the Musser movement by centuries. They were reinvigorated during the Musser movement as we need to study these books, whereas pre prior to the Musser movement, these books sat dusty on top of some bookshelf somewhere. The Musser movement says, no, 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 we need to get back to these. These are fundamental works, the basics of Judaism. And these are available in English, and anyone can read them. This would be kind of what I would call the first wave of Jewish works. A second wave, and it's not so much chronological because the second wave still exists, is what I would call contemporary Musser books. And many of them are available in English as well. I just went to our shelf and I picked one up Rabbi by Rabbi Shlomo Volbi, who has passed away maybe, what, 20 years ago? Zurio Binyan, he is the name of his book. It's translated in English. It's a great book. This happens to be a fantastic book. I don't necessarily recommend this middle stage book because it's a little bit more, I mean, I, wouldn't, I don't not recommend them. These are a little bit more designed for someone who's in a, you know, fully immersed in Jewish life. This is yet another book that you can read. And this is great, I just picked this book randomly. You have what's, what I would call a third wave of, Jew, of Musser works. And this really highlights one of the differences between what I think Musser and other movements. This is a book by, a very popular author. I've only read a little bit of his stuff. Alan Morinus. Anyone heard of him? Yeah, yep. The Musser Institute. This is a recent book, which I'm going to push. My wife's friend wrote this, Ruchi Koval. She lives in Cleveland. Soul Construction. I would highly recommend these books, even though I haven't really read them. The, what these, this third wave, what Musser, which if you really think about it, Musser is just Jewish philosophy and Jewish ethics. You don't need to be a scholar to really get, if you think about it, Musser is a return to the basics of Judaism. It's a return to the fundamentals. It doesn't matter who you are. You could be you know, off the street, never opened up a book of Judaism. Musser is for you. Other movements, not necessarily so. Hasidism, although they tried and have tried, if you really want to read and be inspired by Babel Hasidus, you're going to have to first really learn a lot of information about Judaism. Not so Musser. Musser is the fundamentals of Judaism. And there are many of these, what I would call third era of Musser works, which are written by contemporaries, and they're really written for the masses. It's written for anybody, from the scholar, the layman, 
Guy Off the Street, these are, fin and there are a million of these types of books. And if anyone wants more recommendations, I, I've got plenty of them. Musser really had three goals. I love this, this, I got, this idea I got for again, and I, I should point out, talk about books. One of the great books that outlines the history of the Musser movement, its goals, its aims, and its personalities, was a great book. It's a four-volume, uh, five-volume work called Tenuo Samosur, which translates into the Musser movement. It was written by a, a giant in his own right. His name was Rabbi Dove Katz. It was published in, I want to say the 50s or 60s. The first volume was translated into English. It's called the Musser movement. There actually, it's two volumes. So it's two volumes make up the first volume. I don't think this is in print. If you could find it, let me know, but I don't think it's in print anymore. I remember it took me forever to get my hands on this. Um, and it's, it's a scholarly work. It's, it's written, it's beautifully written, but it is a scholarly work in my opinion. But Rabbi Katz outlines three major goals that the Muslim movement had, three major goals. He calls perfection of observance, perfection of deed, and perfection of character. Let's go through them briefly. Perfection of Torah observance. What the Muslim movement found, and this was true in the mid-1800s, and it's true today, is that even amongst observant Jews, Jews who are involved, Jews who are passionate about their Judaism, we tend to pick and choose what mitzvahs we focus on and ignore other mitzvahs. So you find a pious Jew, they might be Shabbat observant, only keep kosher. Do you speak Lashon Hara? <laughs> Most do. Right? You, you could be the most pious. There are certain mitzvahs which just get neglected for one reason or another. A lot of the mitzvahs, particularly in the mid-1800s, it's true nowadays as well, the mitzvahs of bein adam l'chavero, treating your friends nicely. You could be the most righteous, pious Jew, but you've got friction between you and your next-door neighbor. Well, that's actually a mitzvah also, is to love your neighbors. <clears throat> So there was a real big emphasis, particularly in areas of interpersonal relationships, which we tend to just view as maybe in the self-help section of the library, but not in the Torah section of the library. Muster said, no, wait a minute. Interpersonal relationships, how we treat our friends, how we treat our spouses, how we treat our kids, not gossiping. That's also part of Torah. Another, there was another emphasis of the Muster movement was Choshen Mishpat, the laws of civil law. A lot of times when we think of piety, we think of, uh, you know, maybe someone who is very careful about their bein adam l'chaver, the interpersonal relationships, person is careful about Shabbat, careful about kosher, and all those things. But when it comes to business, all is fair. I'll sue you, you'll sue me, and I'll do whatever I need. Business practices are also governed 25%. The Code of Jewish Law deals with business practice. And many Jews in the 1800s and many Jews today, when it comes to business, we have like a different set of laws for some reason. The Muslim movement calls for perfection of Torah observance. You can't just be pious and righteous in certain areas of Jewish life. Judaism really is across all domains of Jewish life. Perfection of deed, the second goal. Even the mitzvahs that we do do, no matter who you are and what your background is, prayer. It doesn't matter your religious background, observance. Everyone should be praying three times a day. It's, it's any, everyone could do that. Terrific. But when I pray, am I really focused? Am I really Praying with passion? Or am I doing it out of rote? And we do it so often, we, we don't have the passion. And if you recall, that's what Musser was really fighting, is that you've got to do it with passion. You can't just be Jewish and I, I do my that, I have my Passover Seder, and I do my Shabbat, and I go to synagogue, and I go home, and, I, and we go through the motions of what it means to be Jewish. Judaism, uh, the Muslim movement said, no, no, no. Even the things that we are doing, are we doing it with passion? Are we doing it with enthusiasm? Are we doing it because we believe this is the right thing to be doing right now? And this is what God put me on earth to do? Is there a passion, a zeal, an energy? Perfection of deed. And then thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, the Musser movement called for a perfection of character. Perhaps one of the most fundamental ideas that Musser revolves around is a saying that was attributed to Rabbi Salanter, and it's perhaps one of the most fundamental ideas in all of Musser. And that is at the greatest distance in the, in the universe, the farthest distance between two points, one of the farthest, most polar distances in the entire universe is, of course, between the mind and the heart. Between the mind, your own mind, and your heart is the greatest distance in the universe. I actually just, I, I did quote from this book from Alan Moranis. I just was reading this over Shabbos, and I, I, he, he gave it a good example. 
This as an example. He says, we should not let what we learn remain intellectual concepts, mere information. Grasping the definition of humility, for example, is not the same as being humble. Being able to cite all the reasons that one should trust God is not necessarily going to ease the anxious heart into tranquility. Okay, this is one of the most profound ideas. I can write the most profound essay on anything, and I could read all the books on a particular topic. I don't know, anger, anger management. I'll read every book in the library, and I'll write a discourse and get my PhD in anger management. Do I know how to control my anger? I might know that it's wrong, but am I practicing it? I could read every Torah source. Trust God. God is in control of everything. Yeah, why am I so nervous and anxious about everything in the world? Where's my trust in God? Musser, and that's the gap between your mind. I know it's true, but do I feel it? Do I feel it in my heart and my soul? That is, how do you get things that you know to being part of who you are? That is one of the biggest avodas, one of the biggest missions of Musser is most Jews know what's right and we know what's wrong. But do we feel it? Is it in our kishkas? Is it inside of us? And Musser tries to bridge that gap. How does that work? You have to stick around for section three. But we have a, the reality is there's a big disconnect between that which we know and that which we feel. The real pioneer, of course, of the Musser movement, person who, again, and it's not a, a new idea as we've mentioned. This is really a refocusing of old values. A fundamental, really a fundamental. This is one of the beauties why, again, I love Musser and why Musser is so popular. And you have books that are really written for the masses is because Musser is about these very fundamental ideas. Okay, I, so person, where are you on the religious spectrum? I don't know. But everyone wants to be a little bit more humble, right? So how do I actually become more humble? I don't want to read a book about the virtues of humility. I don't want to, you know, how do I become a humble person? How do I become a more caring person? That's the goal of the Muslim movement. Rabbi Israel Lipkin, Rabbi Israel Lipkin was born in Zagor in the Kavna district. It's right on the Latvian border between Lithuania and Latvia. He's born in the year 1810. He's gonna die in the year 1883. I always like as a frame of reference, what year was Abraham Lincoln born? 1809. So he's born right around the same time as Lincoln. Now Lincoln, of course, was assassinated in 1865, but his life roughly corresponds to that of Abraham Lincoln. So he's just like a good barometer. He grew up in this town, Zagor, but his father sent him to, to study by a rabbi in the town of Salant, which is in Lithuania, at the age of 12. And he was a wonder kid. Brilliant. The rabbi of the town studied with him. I was sharing the story with Rabbi Katanik earlier. The rabbi of the town, this 12-year-old kid, the rabbi was a prestigious rabbi. He sees this kid, this kid is off the charts. And he basically spent his whole day tutoring this kid to the point where the rabbi of the town didn't like Rabbi Yisrael Lipkin, this little kid Yisrael Lipkin, was like, what's my husband's prestigious rabbi? Was he spending his day as an elementary school teacher? And she ended up having a little bit of friction with, with, with Yisrael Lipkin. But the reality was he was a wonder kid, brilliant at the earliest of ages. He got married at the age of 14, which to you and me sounds crazy, but that was life back in, in Eastern Europe in the Jewish and non-Jewish world. Yeah, just as an aside, why did people get married so young, 14 and 15? They didn't live long. You couldn't wait till you got your master's and then you moved to the Upper West Side and I got my career and then I'll think about, you know, J-Date and I'll get married when I'm 36. You were dead. Like, you, life started early. It's just, it was a reality. People got married very, very young. He got married when the age of 14. We don't know, at least, I'm sure there's more information available. I couldn't find out a whole lot about his wife. His wife's father, I know, was a rabbi named... Rabbi Yaakov Alevi Eisenstein, I don't know much about his family. They had five children together. Um, I don't know much about Rabbi, uh, and his name was, again, Rabbi Yisrael Lipkin, but he ended up, people know him colloquially. Last names in Judaism don't really, where do they come from and what do they mean? Not all that much. He was known as Rabbi Yisrael Salanter because he spent the formative years of his life studying in this town of Salant. So he was known as Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, Rabbi Israel from the town of Salant. And that's how I'm going to refer to him uh, for consistency, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Uh, his kids, I don't know a ton about them, although he, one of his grand, grandchildren would be uh, Rabbi E.E. E. Dessler. Rabbi Dessler was one of his grandchildren, was a, a phenomenal pioneer of, of Musser thinking in his own right. When, Israel, when Rabbi Israel was a youngster living in this town of Salat, studying under Rabbi, he met really one of the more mysterious figures in the Musser movement. He met a different rabbi. His name was Rabbi Zundel. Zundel. He was also known in history as Rabbi Zundel Salanter. Again, they were not related. They just both were from the same town of Salant. So it's confusing. But Rabbi Zundel of Salant is not the same. No relation to Rabbi Israel. They just lived in the same town. And that was important. Because Rabbi, Rabbi Zundel of Salant was a student of 
Reb Chaim Valajin, who is a student of the Vilna Gaon. So we understand the line of history. And Rabbi Zundel had this tremendous focus on these ideas of Musr. And that was a real defining part of his life. But he kind of did it privately, quietly. And Rabbi Yisrael, as he's getting older and older, he's a teenager, now he's in his young 20s. He had his eye on this pious guy, Rabbi Zundel. He asked him one day, like, what, what's up? What, what are you doing? Rabbi, Rabbi, Sal- Rabbi Yisrael Salanter asked Rabbi Zundel, like, what's your story, man? And Rabbi Zundel, the story goes, tells Rabbi Yisrael, he said, do yourself a favor, study some Musr. And that'll explain everything. And Rabbi Yisrael would tell over, it was like a, literally one sentence, study Musr. He said it changed his life. Changed his life, changed the trajectory of his life and the trajectory of, you know, European Jewry and modern Jewry. He said it like, it sent fire down his spine. Study Musr. Musr is what the solution Rabbi Salanter understood the problems with himself on a personal level, and he understood this is what he needed, was, was Musr. Musr, if you think about it, it's really a very personal study. It's very personal. It's about every individual finding their purpose, finding their passion, finding their meaning. And for the first 30 years of his life, Rabbi Salanter, when he, he was inspired by this idea of this call for Musr, but it was a very private, individualized pursuit. And that really was Rabbi Salanter's goal. He's 30 years old, he's living in this town of Salant, and his plan was, just like Rabbi Zundel, Rabbi Zundel was not a huge oratora teacher, he didn't have a ton of students, it was sort of a personal pursuit. And that was going to be Rabbi Yisrael Salanter's plan. As a matter of fact, if you would have stopped Rabbi Salanter at the age of 29 and said, what were your plans? At least Rabbi Katz says, I don't know where he gets this from. He says that Rabbi Salanter's plan was to go into business. He was gonna be a wagon driver, at one time, he decided he was going to be a bookkeeper. He was just going to work and privately work on his own personal growth in Musser. But at the age of 30, it's not clear what inspired him. Perhaps, my guess, I suspect, is he saw the problems of Eastern European Jewry. He realized it's not just a personal struggle. He realized that Judaism in Eastern Europe needed inspiration. It needed fire. It needed passion. It needed Musser. And in 1830, sorry, in 1840, the age of 30 years old, Rabbi Salanter decides he's going to take this message public. The way he does that is he realized in order to do that, he was a brilliant, he was just, he was a very smart guy, brilliant person. And he realized in order to make this message public, he needs a platform. If you want to change the world, you have to have a platform. And he decided he was kind of going public with it. And as I mentioned, he was a brilliant scholar, but he was very humble and he kept it kind of to himself. No, I mean, people in the town of Salant knew that he was brilliant, but again, he never really sought out any positions, any jobs, like as in the rabbinate or in the yeshiva. That wasn't his goal. In 1840, he decided he was moving to Vilna. Vilna, of course, was the city in Eastern European Jewish life. It was kind of the capital of Jewish life. Today, it's the capital of Vilnius, the capital of, of Lithuania. But back then, in the 1800s, it was, was the capital. That's where the Vilna Gaon was from. It was the capital. It was the center city of Jewish life, both in Torah observance and even non-Torah life. It was Vilna. He decided he would move to Vilna. And from 1840 to 1848, 1849, he was a rabbi in Vilna. He had a small yeshiva there. And he began teaching this concept, these ideas and messages of Musser. And he taught them to the, to the masses. Two major things happened in Rabbi Salanter's life in the year 1848. Number one, this is a well-documented story. It's a remarkable story. In the year 1848, there was a cholera epidemic that swept through, that swept through Vilna. And the doctor... now. Even though Rabbi Yisrael had now kind of, kind of come out public and like people understood that he was a giant of a person, he didn't really have a, a, from a formal perspective, he wasn't like the head rabbi of Vilna. He wasn't like the chief rabbi of Vilna. He was doing his thing very effectively, but he wasn't like on a, any hierarchical chain, the guy on top. But during the cholera epidemic of 1848, the doctors, physicians felt that people really needed to conserve their health as much as possible. I don't know much about modern medicine. I certainly don't know much about med- medical theories of 1848 Eastern European Jewry. Like, I don't know. But the physicians felt you have to eat, you have to walk, you have to exercise, and you need to minimize your exposure to other people, social distance. That's what the call was. And the problem was is the cholera epidemic of 1848 overlapped with Yom Kippur. And Rabbi Salanter really started you know, pushing everyone, everyone, no matter your background, has to eat on Yom Kippur that year. Naturally, there was a lot of pushback. And it was at that point that Rabbi, Rabbi Salanta realized he needed to emerge kind of as an authority figure and the head honcho of Vilna. And that's what he did. And he stridently and passionately proclaimed that everyone, mu- and he went around, put up posters, everyone must eat on Yom Kippur. Famously, the story is well documented 
that he went in the big shul and he made Kiddush on Yom Kippur. Now, I find that story to be fascinating. I'm pretty sure, Rabbi Katani, can you help me? The halacha is if you eat on Yom Kippur, you don't make Kiddush. So I assume, have you ever, have you heard this? I've always been bothered by this story. I assume he did it to make a point. That's how you've heard it? I've always assumed that to be true. You don't make, if a person has to, for whatever reason, eat on Yom Kippur, you don't make Kiddush. But Rabbi Salanter needed to make a point. Everyone must eat. And he made Kiddush in front of the whole congregation. And I think the story goes, he went around from shoal to shoal making Kiddush for everyone and basically demanding that everyone eat. And it was a little bit of a, um, it, it created a ruckus. And some people looked down on him, like, who does this guy think he is? But the majority of people, they recognized his influence and his stature. He was the gadol. He was kind of the most significant person in town. Rabbi Salanter, as I mentioned, needed a platform. And part of it, he was a PR genius. He realized that, sadly, many Torah scholars, people who studied in yeshiva, they didn't present well. In the 1800s, this is one of the big challenges in mid in really in, in mid 18 in mid 18 19th century Eastern Europe. Many of the rabbis, many of the Torah scholars, just didn't present well. Rabbi Salanter realized that in order to make his movement, this Muslim movement, popular to the masses, that needed to change. Rabbi Salanter, who didn't really carry much of a salary, he, didn't, he was not a wealthy man at all, always dressed impeccably. Like everyone, like who is that? He dressed totally different than most rabbis dressed in his time. Crisp suits, polished shoes, everything. He, he looked dressed to the nines, well-kempt. He was fluent in many languages. He was a brilliant orator, which was not common. It's an interesting thing. We think nowadays, of what does a rabbi do? Rabbi Katanik, he gets up and he speaks, gives his brilliant sermons. That's the role of a rabbi. That is not a, that is, that is a very, very new thing. The role of a rabbi, the rabbis didn't speak, given, didn't give sermons. They ruled on halachic issues and led their communities. But the idea of giving sermons, of inspiring, was not a common thing. Rabbi Salanter changed that. He felt that there was a call, we need to inspire, and it needs, requires articulation. And he presented very, very well. And because of that, in 1848, another thing happened in Rabbi Salanter's life. In Vilna, as I mentioned, there was a movement called the Haskalah movement, which was kind of like, it was similar to the German reform movement, but it was a little different. It wasn't calling for a change in, in theological doctrine. It was calling for Jews to be more involved in the humanities and to be less, you know, calm down with all that Torah stuff, which in theory sounds like maybe that can be okay. There's nothing wrong in, in the right context and the right venues of being a little bit more worldly. The challenge is, is most of these Haskalaniks really looked askance at Torah. And they were very, very influential. And in Vilna in 1848, there were some of these people in the Haskalah movement really brought in the Russian government to try to take over a lot of the institutions of education and to have Haskalah thinking be taught in the traditional Torah institutions. Rabbi Salanter was vehemently opposed. The problem was, is that these Haskalah people, they recognized that Rabbi Salanter was so, A, so influential, B, he came across exactly what they were looking for. He was worldly. He was polished. He looked the part. They wanted Rabbi Salanter to actually lead their team. But Rabbi Salanter wasn't interested. The problem is, is you can't say no to the Russian government. It's not a good idea if you want to keep your head on your shoulders. So in 1848, he, he fled from... Vilna, and he settled in a town called Kovna, Lithuanian town called Kovna. There he started another yeshiva, and that's really where he started developing a lot of students. His three primary students, who uh, you know, we know are, his primary student was a, a rabbi named Rabbi, rabbi Yitzhak Blazer, more commonly known as Rabbi Itzala Petterberger. Where do you get a name like Petterberger from? What does Petterberg mean? St. Petersburg. He became a rabbi in St. Petersburg, as I mentioned earlier. You got your last name from where you were. Rabbi, rabbi, rabbi Yitzchak Blazer, Yitzchak Itzala, Rabbi Itzala Petterberger, he moved to St. Petersburg, who was a rabbi there for a while, and that's how he's known you know, in history as Rabbi Itzala Petterberger, was probably his most prized student. He had another rabbi, Rabbi Naftali Amsterdam, guess where he was from, and Rabbi Simcha Zisel Ziv, would end up starting a yeshiva in Kelm. He's known as the altar of Kelm. He had a couple other students which are remarkable. Anyone heard of Rabbi Jacob Joseph? RJJ, anyone ever hear of the school RJJ? It's an elementary school, Staten Island in, in New York. Rabbi Jacob Joseph was, for about 20 minutes, did you ever know there was a chief rabbi of New York? He was the chief rabbi of New York for about 15 minutes. Rabbi Jacob Joseph was a Talmud, was a student of, of uh, you know, a little bit of a sad story, but the, the school, RJJ, is named after Rabbi Jacob Joseph, was a student of Rabbi Salanter. Any tea drinkers here? We can't be friends. I'm a coffee drinker. But you ever heard of Wasatsky tea? 
common teeth. Wasatsky's teeth. Wasatsky was a Talmud of Rabbi Yisrael, of Kalamanus Wasatsky. He moved to Israel, I recall. So he had a lot of students while he was in, um, in Kovna. But then a remarkable thing. A remarkable thing happened in 1857. Rabbi Salanter, 1857, puts him at 47 years old. He's one of the most influential people in all of Eastern Europe. He's got his Muslim movement, his yeshivas, and he decides, you know what I'm going to do? Ladies and gentlemen, shalom. I'm out of here. And he moved to Germany. It was really Prussia. It's right, right on the Prussia-Lithuanian border. Now I actually think it's in Lithuania. The region called Memel. It's right on the, on the sea. And he moved to Germany to spread his message. The question is, is why, why are you... Where, like, no one saw it coming. Why did he move to Germany? And that's really where he spent the, you know, he died, he's, he's 57 years old. He dies the, in, in 1883, the year's age, he's 73 years old. He spends the good chunk of his adult life in Germany. Now, why did he move there? To Memel, Konigsberg? Why did he live there? He famously gave the analogy. He said, you know, imagine you have a train. It's out of control. Brakes have, have, have failed. And it's speeding down a mountain. You could try to get in front of the train and stop it. You're not going to be successful. It's barreling down at too great of a speed. You're better off, wait till the train gets to the bottom and comes to a stop, and then try to push it back up. He said Eastern Europe, Lithuania, Latvia, it was just he saw this deterioration of Jewish life, and it was just crashing and burning, falling down the hill. Germany, we've talked about what German, German life had looked like, was a generation ahead, probably two generations ahead, of Eastern Europe in terms of its religious decline. By 1850, it was over. That decline, they had hit rock bottom. Rabbi Salanter said, I'll be more successful. Let me move to Germany and try to push it up the hill. And that's the story. It should be noted, Rabbi, Rabbi Salanter didn't just leave Eastern Europe. He, he, was, he traveled a lot. And he was, I guess what you call an international personality at this point. And he would go back to Kovna and Vilna regularly. But he did spend the rest of his life working in Germany. He met with the great German rabbis. We've talked about Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch. They had met and, and I don't know, not deep relationships, but they were on the same page. Rabbi Israel Hildesheim, if you've ever studied German Jewry, you know, he held him in very high regard, which is fascinating. And then in 1880, and oh, just to back up, while in Germany, he really was, there's no way of saying it, Rabbi Salanter spent the bulk of his career as an outreach rabbi. That is really what he did. He tried to inspire the masses to get back into their Judaism, the basics of Musser, of having passion, inspiration, and reinvigoration. He moved in 1880 to France, of all places. He moved to Paris. It's not clear to me exactly why he moved. And he died in Konigsberg in 1883. The story goes about his death. It's just a remarkable story, and it really highlights the kind of person he was. So he was dying in a, in a hospital ward or whatever it was. And um, it was clear he, was, he had just had a few minutes left to live, but he was conscious and alert. And all his numbers were crashing and all that. And I, there was either a nurse or another patient. Someone else was in the room who was kind of like spooked out about being in a room. It's a scary thing. If you've ever been in a room where someone is dying, if you've never been there, it could be a little traumatic. And Rabbi Salanter recognized that the guy sitting next to him in the hospital room was like somewhat traumatized that Rabbi Salanter was about to die. Rabbi Salanter, the great leader of, you know, Jewry and the Musser movement, you can imagine it's the moment, you know, he knew he was dying, he knew he had moments to live, you know, repenting, tshuva, Torah, all the things that must have been going through his mind, sure, a little bit of fear and anxiety, spent the last moments of his life reassuring some random stranger next to him, don't worry, it's nothing to worry about, don't be freaked out, trying to relieve the trauma and tension of some random state stranger. And that's how Rabbi Israel Salanter died. It's an amazing story, like we talk about perfection of deed, perfection of Torah, like, that was a mitzvah. Sadly, the guy next to me is going to be traumatized by my death. I'll try to relieve his tension. And that's how he died. It's an amazing story. So what does Musser practically look like? What, what does it actually look like? It's a hard question to answer. And with the few minutes that we've got left, I'm just going to try to tackle it briefly. And I'll note that I'm going to tell over, you know, my thoughts there are many branches. After Rabbi Salanter dies in 1883, there were many branches. It's interesting. Rabbi says it should be noted. Rabbi Salanter really tried to make the Muslim movement a populist movement. He really, to a large degree, failed. It didn't catch hold amongst the masses as much as he would have wanted. Where it did catch hold were in the yeshivas. The great Lithuanian yeshivas, which would emerge right after his death, right towards the end of his life. Kalm, Slabodka, the Mir, all these tremendous yeshivas which would really flourish beginning in the 1880s and really 1890s and early 1900s. The yeshiva move movement 
which was, again, another one of these isms and movements, the Musr movement really infiltrated most, not all, but most yeshivas. And it was there where Musr really captured and took hold. Fast forward till today, you know, the yeshiva movement a century later, the yeshiva movement is really the backbone in many, in many respects of modern Jewish life. And that's why Musr has kind of seen a resurgence and has now hopefully slowly making its way back to the masses because as we have an influx of students in yeshivas who are all impacted by Musr, so now Musr is making its way back to the masses. That's my theory. This yeshiva that I studied in, and the rabbis here at the Kolo studied, it's called a yeshiva called Chavetz Chaim. Our founder of our yeshiva studied in a yeshiva called Slabadka, which is right, remember we mentioned that town, Kavna. Slabadka is in the, functionally in the town of Kavna. And it had its particular approach to Musr, although there were other different branches of the, within the Musr movement, different points of emphasis. So what I'm about to share is kind of my understanding, a limited understanding of what Slabadka flavor of Musr, and it, frankly, the Slabadka school of Musr thought is, I don't know, represents today probably about 80 or 90% of modern Musr thinking. So it's pretty ubiquitous. There are three major areas of Musr. One is called, and just so we're on the same page, the goal is, remember we had mentioned, the perfection of character. How do we get from our minds to our heart? So we'll talk about, you know, humility, trust in God, all the things that we know are true. How do we make them a part of us? Three major things, and obviously there are many more. Three major things. One is called Chachmas HaMusr, which means intellectualizing things. For those of you who are on, we have a little WhatsApp chat on the rules of Shmira Salashan of proper speech. If you're not on it, now's a great time to join. So I send out every week, every day, a, a, a short little two, two, three minute message on Shmira Salashan, appropriate speech. And we actually just put, put out last week or the week before, I don't remember. One of the ideas I know in my yeshiva, we studied the laws, I'm just using it as an example, of proper speech. It's called Shmira Chavetz Chaim Seder. We would study the laws of proper speech. Rabbi Goldman remembers we studied, it was twice a week for a half an hour. If you ever look at the laws of appropriate speech, it's, it's a nice book, but it's about that big. I remember it always struck me as being so out of disproportion, out of proportion, so disproportionate. I was in yeshiva, what, 13 years? I spent an hour a week studying one book. It seems so out of proportion. I get it, I know the laws. I love, Next thing, there's so many laws and Talmud and the codes. Why do we have to have such a disproportionate amount of focus? I remember by asking my rabbi, like, why are we doing this? I get it. Like, I don't mean to belittle it, but it seems out of proportion. My rabbi explained, no, you don't get it. It's not just a matter of learning the laws so you knew the laws. But have you ever noticed, if you ever read a book, all you do is you think about that book the rest of the day? Everyone know what I'm talking about? You watch a, a documentary, you think about the documentary. Intellectualizing things, studying things, it doesn't just stay up here. But when we focus on it in our minds, it slowly gets into our hearts. We're going to study the laws of appropriate speech because hopefully you know what will happen? Maybe we'll actually be sensitive to appropriate speech. So that's one idea. It's called Chachmas HaMosar, intellectualizing ideas, intellectualizing values that becomes a part of us. Anyone ever know? Interesting question. It's an example. Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, great foe of slavery. Why did Lincoln care about slavery? Why was it something that like, bothered him so deeply? I don't know, it's a great question. What's the origin story? Lincoln grew up in Kentucky, so yes, he did see a little bit of slavery, but he spent most of his life in Ohio. Why did he care? Story goes, is in 1830-something or other, he actually took two trips down the Mississippi River. And the story goes, he was in New Orleans. He's a young guy. He's in his 20s, and he saw slaves in chains being sold and abused. And he would tell, he told one of his friends, he said, this, this is horrible. It shook him to the core. When he saw slavery changed his life. And he devoted his whole life functionally, and he literally gave his life to fight slavery. And this is an idea that the great Muslim thinkers talk about. You want to intellectualize something that's great. One of the ways of intellectualizing something is by visualizing it. By visual, you see, it's one thing I can tell you how bad slavery is, but when you see it, it makes a tremendous roshan, a tremendous mark. And a lot of when we talk about intellectualizing it, a lot of times what we're trying to do up, what we're trying to do is conjure up images. I'll tell you another story. It's a terrible story. It's in 1852, <clears throat> 1852, there's a woman, her name is Eliza, she's a slave, has a, her son Harry, and her master, Arthur and Emily Shelby, are having financial troubles and they hear that they're going to sell her son Harry to make some money. So Eliza decides she's going to risk her life, she runs away, crosses the Ohio, frozen Ohio River at great peril, only to hear that the person who's going to buy her son 
you know, track down a slave hunter to go find her son. And what was the negotiation? That the slave hunter would try to find her son, capture both of them, keep the mom, sell the kid, and it would be great. Horrible. Anyone familiar with this story? Story never happened. It's a made-up story. What's the most important book ever written in English? Most important book in the history of the United States of America ever written? Without question, my opinion. The most important book from a historical perspective ever written in English without question is Uncle Tom's Cabin. Everyone familiar with Uncle Tom's Cabin? That's the story of Uncle Tom's Eliza, Tom, Harry, Eva. That's the story of Uncle Tom's Cabin. The whole story never happened. Why did it create such a... It's an apocryphal story. It could be true, or maybe it is true. Except during the Civil War, Lincoln bumps into Harriet Beecher Beecher Stowe, who is a short little woman, and Lincoln says, so you're the little woman that started this great war. How did that happen? It's just a fake story. It's made up. It's not true. And the answer is, powerful idea in human psychology, you don't need a story. You don't need to actually see something. Sometimes you can let your mind do the seeing. And if you can conjure up the, the emotion of that story, it can change the country. And that's, that's the story of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Musser and Chachmas al-Musser tries to do the same thing. It tries us to visualize what it means to be a humble person. When we read and intellectualize, when we read a passage in the great Musser works, try to really conjure it up in your mind. And by doing that, it makes a tremendous in- impact. The second idea within Musser of how to get things to be a part of us is something called Chinuch al-Musser, practicing Musser. One of my favorite stories, a great study a tremendous study. I've shared this with many, but it's just so powerful. There was, uh, this was all fake, but there was a, a study that was done in 1960-something or other where they, uh, a bunch of researchers, they knocked on people's doors and they asked them, they said, do you mind, we're trying to, you know, people are driving through the, the neighborhood really fast. Um, there are a lot of kids going to school and, and it's, it's not safe. Do you mind, we're tra- starting a campaign. Can you post on your, put on your lawn like a billboard, like one of those placards that says drive safely. And they deliberately designed these signs to be hideous. Fonts were all ugly, it was huge, it was monstrously ugly. And naturally speaking, you know, less, about 15% of people said we're willing to do it. Fine. They had a second group where they did the same thing, but with one caveat. They first knocked on their doors and asked them to see them in the same pitch, you know, we want to reduce speeding in the neighborhood and their kids and all that. Do you mind putting, it was like a little two by two, elegantly designed, you know, little thing that says drive safely. Do you mind putting this in your window? And of course, everyone said yes, it wasn't a big deal. People did that. Two weeks later, they then asked, hey, do you want to put this big ugly billboard? Same ugly billboard, which only 15% of people were willing to put in their lawn. This second group who had been primed with that little sticker, 86% said yes. They did a third group, fascinating. Where they asked people to sign, this was done in California, they asked people to sign a petition. They knocked on people's doors. Would you sign the petition, keep California beautiful? Who's not gonna sign that? Yes, I wanna keep California beautiful. They signed everyone's sign, keep California beautiful. Two weeks later, they came with this same stupid sign. 50% of people said they were willing to do it. Why, what happened? I'll tell you what the people who did the study, this is what they argued. What may occur is a change in the person's feelings about getting involved or taking action. Once he has agreed to a request, his attitude may change. He may become, in his own eyes, the kind of person who does this sort of thing, who agrees to requests made by strangers, who takes action on things he believes in, who cooperates with good causes. The second goal and the second idea in Musser, trying to get things a part of us, is called Chinacha Musser. You want to know, you want to become a person who's a little bit more caring, right? Studying about caring is one idea. But you know what you can do? Give a dollar to charity every day. Sometimes actions... You know, they, the action, it's more than they speak, the action will draw forth your emotion. We like to think the type of person I am will go and lead my actions where they need to be. You see from this study the other way around. If you put the little sign up on your door, you've now redefined the kind of person I am. Sometimes you inverse the process. Do the thing first and the emotion will follow. This is what they call in Musser, chitsonios maoreras apanimios. Sometimes our external actions, you have to do this very carefully though, our external actions really drive what's inside of us. Give a dollar to charity. You want to go, it's not going to solve our problems. You want to build a relationship with your wife, go bring her flowers, see what happens. A lot of times actions are what lead us to become better people. And then thirdly and finally, perhaps this is Rabbi Yisrael Salanter would write about this. We have very little in original writing from Rabbi Salanter. 
Fortunately for history, when Rabbi Salanter moved to Germany, he wrote a number of letters back to his students in Kovna. And these were reprinted by Rabbi Itzela Petterberger in a book called Ori Yisrael, which is a collection of about 30 of Rabbi Salanter's letters. That's really all that we have from Rabbi Salanter that survives. And one of the messages that he talks about time and time again is what he calls Sifsofsayim Dolkos, lips aflame. One of the main primary areas that Musser calls for is a form of meditation, I guess. We want to make an idea in the Torah part of us. Rabbi Salanter said, you know what you need to do? You find a passage, nothing that you didn't know already, and you read it over, and you read it a second time, and a third time, and a fourth time, and a millionth time, with an emotion, with a tune. Music is a very spiritual thing. And you meditate for 10 minutes, a half an hour, on a point every single day of your life till you die. You know, every day you could focus on something else. But Musser is about bringing up passion, making things a part of you, us. And he called for this sips of Sayim Dolkos, this meditative practice of focusing on a passage in the Talmud, a passage in our sages, passage in a classic Musser work. Don't just read it, but meditate on it. Repeat it over and over and over with passion, with emotion, with a tune assuming you're not tone deaf. And it'll become a party. Isn't it interesting? Rabbeinu Bachai writes, you're right, the Jews are in the, in the desert. Remember the story, the Jews are in the desert. How do they live? With the man. Remember the manna falls from the heaven. 40 years. And imagine, says Rabbeinu Bachai, you know what could have happened? God, you know, the beginning of the 40 years, this huge influx of the manna, everyone take it, put it into your, into your fridge, put it into your freezer, and it'll last you the rest of, the, of your time in the desert. That's not what happened. It didn't fall once. It didn't fall once a year, once a month. Once a day. It fell once a day, and that was it. It was only enough for a day. And every day, the Jews had to wake up and get the mud. Why? The verse tells us, Because it was a Musr meditation. God, for the first 40 years, that incubative period of the Jewish existence, God needed to repeat over and over every single day for 40 years that you know how you stay a- your, your parnasa, your sustenance exists? It's not because you're a skilled doctor, lawyer, or Indian chief. It's because because God declared it so. And Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says, that's great, but why every day for 40 years? And the answer is because hopefully maybe after 40 years, it'll make a difference on you. And Rabbi Sheryl Salanter would tell us, you want one of the things about Musr is that we can fundamentally change who we are. We can become more caring people, more humble people, people who are closer and more reliant on God. We can take those intellectual ideas and we can fundamentally change who we are. Our character, our personalities can change. But says Rabbi Yisrael, you got to work on it every day by meditating, by focusing, by thinking about it. And please God, if we take some of these messages and ideas of the Muslim movement, please God, will become better people. I want to thank you all for coming. I've gone a little bit over. If anyone has any questions, I'm happy to answer. And I want to thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.